Amen. Let's begin this morning with two verses from the Old Testament. Listen and see if you can hear what they have in common. We'll put these up on the screen for you. Here comes that first one. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17. This is what the prophet says, or God says to the prophet. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of His wrath who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. The second is from Jeremiah chapter 25. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Did you pick up what those two verses shared? What they had in common? Obviously, the the common thread there, the common image is the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. Later, the book of the Revelation at the very end of the Bible will utilize this exact same imagery very clearly in Revelation chapter 14 verse 10 and Revelation chapter 16 verse 19. It will pull in and draw in this idea of this. It will use the cup as an image of the wrath of God that is still to come. But my goal in beginning with those verses this morning in our time together, my goal in beginning with those verses is to set the stage for a powerful scene we're about to witness this morning. To set the stage for this passage. We're looking at Matthew 26 this morning, verses 36 through 46. Matthew 26, verse 36 through 46. Easy to remember. This is a passage, of course, from our Bible reading plan this past week. Copies of that are right there in the back. Make sure to grab one and join us on that journey this week as we study through, read through God's Word. So, having just shared, when we're in Matthew 26, here's where we are. We're dropping into this scene where having just shared His last Passover meal with the Twelve, verse 30 of this chapter tells us that after they, that is Jesus and His disciples, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This means that they left Jerusalem through one of the eastern gates, through a little kind of canyon valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And it it just drops down to the slopes of these hills and they're called the the Mount of Olives. Uh, That's where they went. That's where Jesus and His disciples went. It is most likely getting very late in the evening after that meal and that time together. If you want to know more about what took place at that meal just before they left, read John chapters 13 through 17. And there John, who was one of the the men at that meal, tells us more about what Jesus taught them, how He prepared them. More than we have, of course, in 
the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's getting late, but the night is not over as verse 36 goes on to reveal. Look at 36 with me. Then Jesus went with them to a place place called Gethsemane. It just means olive press. It's where they probably took the Mount of Olives, made olive oil there. Olive press. They went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he, Jesus, began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, these three, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. What does that mean? It means I am grief-stricken enough to die. I am grief-stricken enough to die. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, the three, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, Jesus went away and he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. And again He came and He found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, He went away and He prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, did you see the cup there? Did you see the cup? Did you catch the imagery of the cup, the cup imagery in this passage? Yeah, Jesus talks about it explicitly in verse 39. Do you see that? And then he alludes to it again in verse 42. And then uh, again, it, it says in 44, he was using the same words that he had used before this. But, but how are we to understand the imagery, that imagery here? Well, What we want to do is not start with Isaiah or Jeremiah like we saw. We want to start with the Gospel of Matthew itself. We want to start with the context itself and say, does the context of Matthew give us any indication what Jesus means when He says, let this cup pass from Me? Well, earlier, chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, we actually heard the the Markan version of this at the beginning of our service. 
This chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, this is where the mother of James and John, in this account, the mother of James and John comes asking for special positions of honor for her sons. She wants her sons in the glory of the Messiah's kingdom to be in this, on this left and right position of the throne. She believes that they deserve it, I guess. I don't know exactly. But take a look on the screen here. And you will see just a few chapters back in Matthew 20. This is what Jesus says. Jesus answers her after this request. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They, John and James, said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. And the passage goes on, but I want you to see that there, that the cup has already been talked about in the Gospel of Matthew. There is some sense of what he's saying here. What does Jesus mean based on the context of that verse that you see there? Well, think about what's being asked. Think about what James and John have in mind, what the mother has in mind here. They've got in their mind this idea of honor and glory and privilege. That's what's being emphasized. But because of that, I think we can say that Jesus is talking here about drinking the cup of dishonor and shame and rejection and for some, drinking that cup even unto death. That's why He says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking and he tells the men, you will drink this. <laughs> it's exactly what he goes on to tell them in chapter 24, verse 9. Take a look on the screen. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nation, nations for my name's sake. He's talking to these men. Chapter 24 is often misunderstood as referring to some distant future. No. He's telling the guys about what will take place before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And it's exactly what we read in the book of Acts. They suffered. They were flogged in the synagogues. They went before governors and kings just as Jesus told them. Right? All these things shall take place. Right? These things will take place. Uh, this generation shall not pass away before these things take place. He gave them the time frame. He told them, you will face this. And if you hear wars and rumors of wars and, and famines and earthquakes, if you see those things, don't be thrown off by that. That stuff happens. It doesn't mean, it's not a sign. It doesn't mean something's going to happen. You get ready to endure for my namesake. Get ready to stand firm because this is going to be the ground that you're walking for the coming years and decades. He's preparing them for this. He's preparing them to drink His cup. Shame, honor, rejection, even unto death. But the exchange Jesus had with James and John and their mother in Matthew 20 led directly to a lesson, as we heard this morning, about serving one another in humility. A lesson that ended with this stunning statement. Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as what? A ransom for many. To give His life as a ransom for many. Now, 
unlike the figurative cup the disciples would one day drink, the cup that Jesus alone would drink would result in a ransom. James' cup is not going to result in a ransom. John's cup, Peter's cup, the rest of the disciples, the cup that they would drink, their experience of shame and rejection and humiliation for Christ, even their death, would not accomplish a ransom. So Jesus' cup is distinctive in this way, isn't it? It's distinctive. And so as we think about why Jesus alone, His cup results in a ransom, the best explanation based on the New Testament is that the cup Jesus prayed about in this passage was in fact the cup of God's wrath. Understood from the Old Testament by these Jewish men and the Jewish readers, predominantly Jewish readers of the Gospel of Matthew. This wouldn't be lost on them to understand what was, what was happening. Now, this may be surprising to you, but I, w- I want to arm you with this knowledge. To my knowledge, there is not a verse that explicitly uses the word wrath in connection with the cross of Christ. Just so you know that. We talk a lot about it, but there's not one verse that's going to put those two together directly. But that connection, the idea of Jesus being the wrath bearer, that connection, that identification is almost inescapable when you read about Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24 When you read about Jesus becoming a curse for us on that same tree, Galatians 3.13. When you read about in several places Jesus being sent as the propitiation, a word that meant a wrath-satisfying sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. And we could go on to talk about what Christ accomplished on the cross. And it's not hard to connect the dots And see that Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin for us. But keeping that amazing truth in mind, think with me about how Jesus prepares to face this cup. Think about being in in His position. Knowing what He knew about the path ahead. In chapter 17, verse 22, in chapter 20, verse 18, and in verse 2 of this same chapter, chapter 26, Jesus foretold, He spoke of being delivered up or being delivered over to sinful men. Do you remember reading the Gospel of Matthew? How He was predicting this. He was telling His followers in advance, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up. He was talking about this. He's been talking about this. That very moment of being delivered up, being delivered over, was about to take place. It was minutes away. Right? It was hours, minutes, 60 to 90 minutes. I don't know how long it was. It was coming. In fact, when Jesus alerts us to the betrayer in the final verse that we read from our passage this morning, He's pointing us to the fulfillment of this. Verse 47, right? We look at verse 47. We see what Jesus is about to be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. 
delivered over to death. So again, we ask, how did Jesus face the beginning of what's called here His hour? The Gospel of John focuses on this quite a bit. The idea of the hour of Jesus. My hour has not yet come. That hour is coming. The hour is now at hand, Father. Glorify Me as I glorify You. That hour that He's talking about. This is coming together. It's happening right here. What does he do to face this? The horrors that he is about to face? What does he do? He prays. Now, I could just end the message right now. And that would probably be enough for us to simply take away that and say, we just heard and saw what Jesus did in such a difficult time, in the face of such adversity. What did he do? He prayed fell to his knees. He prayed. But let's keep going here and unpack this idea. He prays. And wonderfully, part of his prayer, parts of his prayer were preserved for us. Whether after his resurrection, he told his disciples, this is what I pray for in the garden. Or the three who were just a a short distance away from him, between their, you know, like falling asleep, they could hear what he was praying. They could pick up on some of these words that he was praying and they remembered them, even if they didn't strike them then in any particular way or they didn't understand the context of those. They are preserved for us by God's power in this sacred word for 2,000 years. These words are preserved for us. Why? So that we might learn about, that we might love our Redeemer even more. That we might understand what He endured, what He went through. And why were they preserved for us? So that we might follow our teacher's example in adversity, in prayer. We're learning from Jesus. Even when Jesus is not directly teaching them, He's teaching them. How often was that the case that Jesus was just living Coram Deo before the face of God, living for the glory of God. He was just living. He was modeling that righteous life for them. And they were learning from it. They were picking up from it. Also from the direct instruction that he was given. We are learning from this. So, what do we learn here from his example? Well, first of all, take a look on the screen. First, we see here that our king exemplifies, our king's example He exemplifies what we might call dependent prayer. Dependent prayer. It is certainly true that some people only pray or only pray fervently and sincerely. That is, they only really pray in the worst of times. Maybe you've been guilty of that. I know I have been. When things are going well, you're just kind of cruising right along, right? But when something happens, you're like, oh, Lord. All of a sudden, you're this like righteous, pious, prayer-filled person. Okay? We know that can be true for us. We know that's certainly true for, for many others. But it is equally true that the worst of times can also tempt us away from prayer. We know both are true, aren't they? 
But let's focus on that, that latter idea that the worst of times can often tempt us away from prayer. Jesus was beginning to experience here. This is really the formal beginning, I would say, of what would later be known as His passion. From a Latin word, means suffering. This is the beginning of this passion. If you ever saw the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ... It begins here, doesn't it? In the garden, right? This is like the formal beginning of what he was beginning to suffer. As Jesus said, grief stricken, grief stricken even to death. That's how heavy it was. As was predicted through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier, he is, Jesus is most clearly here, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. For He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. All of it now is beginning to wash over Jesus. Waves. Torrents of distress. Crashing down on Him. Grief. Human pain. The sin and suffering of this fallen world coming crashing down upon Him. We'll talk more about what He was thinking about, what He was facing. Uh, Maybe the words of His ancestor David came to His mind as He fell down before God. Look at Psalm 55, verses 4 and 5. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. That sounds about right, I think, from what we've heard. We know Jesus had the Psalms in mind when He suffered. But Jesus was not tempted away from prayer, was He? He was not tempted away from prayer by the overwhelming nature of what He was and would suffer. He was not tempted away from prayer by a plan to escape under the cover of darkness. He was not tempted away from prayer by a scheme to overpower the authorities when they arrived and then exact revenge on Judas. Oh, (laughs) right? You stay over here while I go and pray. And then Jesus is really over there like, (laughs) here's the plan. Then I'll, you know, I'll... Sweep the feet and then I'll come in and we are, you guys come around from the sides and flank these guys and we'll take them out, right? Boom, that's not what he's thinking about. He's not tempted away from prayer by this. He's not tempted away from prayer by any of the other worldly solution to his suffering. Any fleshly solution to his suffering. Instead, he brings his grief to God. As the coming storm begins to hit the shore, Jesus is seeking refuge in God. Isn't that beautiful? He is seeking refuge in His Father. You see, we could also say here that Jesus was not tempted away from prayer by any false notion that God did not care. He knew the truth. He knew he could go to God. He knew God cared deeply. 
He knew His Father cared and He wants us to know that as well. He's been saying it over and over again in this Gospel. He's been telling these guys. Listen to this. Here's just one example. As He previously taught His disciples, He said, ask and it will be given to you. Guys, I'm talking about prayer, right? Disciples, listen, this is about prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Why are you doubting? Why are you thinking that this is not going to come together for you? Why do you think that God is disinterested in you? Why do you think that God is far away? Why do you think God has turned His back on you? Don't you know who you are? You're children of God. Come before Him. If you ask, He's going to answer. If you knock, He's going to open the door. Right? You will receive from Him. If you then who are evil, if you human fathers, human mothers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Our Heavenly Father, He feeds even the birds of the air. Are you not of more value than they? You see, the distinct value, the inestimable value of the child of God is something that we need to do better to appreciate. Amen? And if that's who you are, then you need to marinate in that truth that you are a child of God. Your father is not just some kind of stern, pouty kind of capricious kind of guy standing in the corner like, what do you want? I'm busy over here. I'm running the universe. You're not like, no. You are His precious child. He loves you. You can go to Him. He wants to hear from you. And when you understand that, like Jesus did, you flee when the storm hits. You find refuge in God. You bring your griefs to God. Second, take a look. We also find in this passage how our King beautifully models for us persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. After the first hour of bringing his grief to God, because it was about an hour, right? He's like, maybe, he's like, couldn't you even like watch with me for, for like one hour, 60 minutes? You guys are totally zonked here. You're totally out of it. So after an hour, he's come back. Bringing, praying, talking to God. For this, it says in verse 42, how we learn how for the second time he went away and prayed. We don't know how long it was this time. And then verse 44 mentions a third time as well. He's praying over and over again throughout the night. Such faith that we see in Jesus is not content with transactional prayers. He's not content with transactional prayers. What Jesus models for us here is rich relational prayer. Relational prayer. He's not arguing His case before God. He's not bargaining with God. He doesn't think He will be heard for His many words. No, He is finding comfort in talking with His Father about the heaviness of His heart. That's different than a transactional prayer, isn't it? That's relational. Ever been in a situation where you've just so enjoyed the company of the people that you with that as you talked, you lost track of time? And it turned out that you were there for three or four hours. <laughs> and they went by like that. 
Right? Time is not a factor here when it's so relationally rich. Lord, that our prayers, our prayer times would be like that. Amen? Relational, not transactional. Uh, hey, Lord, it's me, Pastor Bryce. How you doing? Um, I've got this things that I want you to do for me. And um, I'll say a lot of flowery words and theologically precise words. And okay, good. I'll check this box off. I've prayed. You know, kind of walk away and think that the formula has been satisfied. It's all kind of been transacted. That's not what we see here. Jesus is going to His Father with the heaviness of His heart. We need to let that inspire us, brothers and sisters, to think about God and think about our prayers in exactly this same way. Not say persistent prayer. Whew, how long can I go? I'll start with 15. Tomorrow will be 30. Next week will be 45. And I'll work my way up to three hours. And then I will be really righteous. I will be so godly after that. Right? As if, like, just the length of it is the deal. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that it's persistent because it's deeply relational. He is bringing his griefs to God. A third and final point that we see here as our teacher, as our master models for us this prayer life. A third and final point we see in this passage is how Jesus exemplifies for us what we might call submissive prayer. Submissive prayer. Jesus is not afraid to bring his request to the Father. Let's establish that as the baseline. He's not afraid to bring his request to the Father. What is that request? That request is this. If possible, the cup might pass from him. I take that to mean, based on the word of God, he is saying, Father, if there is any other way to pay this ransom, let it be so. Jesus is not turning away from his mission. He's saying, if there's some other way to pay this ransom, let it be so. But what inspires this request? Was it doubt in Jesus? Was it selfishness on the part of Jesus? To those we say emphatically, no. No, not at all. It was simply a human being recoiling in light of certain suffering and death. It's all we're seeing here. A human being recoiling in light of certain suffering and death. The 17th century commentator, beloved commentator Matthew Henry describes this so well. He said, He had a full and clear prospect of all the sufferings that were before him. He foresaw the treachery of Judas, the unkindness of Peter, the malice of the Jews, and their base ingratitude. He knew that he should now, in a few hours, be scourged, spit upon, crowned with thorns, nailed to the cross, death in its most dreadful appearances, death in pomp, attended with all its terrors, looked him in the face. Recoiling. But again, this recoiling was not wrong. In fact, that's what God designed human beings to do. We have built-in self-protection protocols. It's part of our programming. We have built-in self-protection protocols. What we look around when we see the world today and the state that it's in is we see that programming going awry. 
We see people doing all sorts of things to protect themselves that end up destroying them and hurting others. But the base, the root of it, are these self-protective protocols at work, even in Jesus, in His perfection. They help keep creatures like us alive in a world like this. And yet, again, the best proof that neither doubt nor selfishness was motivating Jesus to pray this way was, in fact, the submissive spirit He demonstrates right here from the very outset. We know doubt and selfishness are not part of this. Why? Because just listen to Jesus. Look at verse 39 again. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. You see, Christ-like faith is not disengaged resignation to whatever may be. Hey man, you just got to go with the flow, man. You just got to float away, man. Right? Tim, you remember people like that in the 60s and 70s? Yeah, saying that, st- that stuff, right? Just go with the flow, baby. Right? Spiritual cruise control. That's not what this is. That's not what Jesus is exemplifying here. It's not just this kind of disengaged resignation. No, Christ-like faith asks God for things. It makes requests of God. It is engaged in that very way. But it always does so while anchored in the priority and the goodness of God's will. That's where our feet are planted firmly. God's will. That is why, this is why Jesus taught them to pray this way. Take a look here on the screen. This is why Jesus taught these very men to pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be revered as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Gosh, that was 20 chapters ago. He was already praying this. Why was he already teaching them this? Because this is who he was. This is how he lived. This is how he continues to live. To address God as Father as he, as he did here, as He taught His disciples, that points us to God's incomparable goodness to us. God is for us, not against us. But He is our Father in heaven which reminds us of His unrivaled position over all things. It is those two realities that inspire Jesus-like prayer, submissive prayer. God is good. He's my Father. God is my Father in heaven. His will is the ultimate priority. He is the King. Jesus practiced what He preached. Isn't that wonderful to know? Jesus practiced what he preached. So what a powerful reminder of this truth. Make note of this. Think about this. What a powerful reminder that the ultimate aim of all prayer, the ultimate aim of all prayer is not to acquire what we want, but to align us with what God wants. Do you think about prayer that way? The ultimate aim is not to acquire what we want, but to be aligned with what God wants. 
Why is that the ultimate aim of prayer? Because we can never do better than the Father's will. Tell yourself that over and over again. Build each other up in your faith based on that. I can never do better than the Father's will. There's no plan I can come up with. There's no future I can imagine. Right? There's no scheme that I can concoct. There's no roadmap for my life that is better better than the Father's will. Not even close. And for us, as we know, His will is always that we become more and more like Jesus. He is making us like Jesus. The very thing we're talking about, why we're learning to pray from Jesus' example here. Uh, Matthew Henry speaks to an aspect of this. I love this. One more quote from him. He says, though we may pray to God to prevent and remove an affliction. Anyone ever done that? Yeah, God, take this away from me. Apostle Paul did that. I prayed three times that the Lord would remove this thorn from my flesh. We do that. We pray and we can bring those requests to God like we already saw. Ask, seek, knock. He wants us to bring those. We may pray to God to prevent and remove an affliction. Yet our chief errand... And that which we should most insist upon must be that He will give us grace to bear it well. It should be more our care to get our troubles sanctified and our hearts satisfied under them than to get them taken away. That's how God wants to change us. That's what we see Jesus modeling for us here. He didn't need to be sanctified. But he's the picture of sanctification. He's the model for us, isn't he? So we look to him and we say, make us like Jesus. Let us pray, not my will, but your will be done. Now, brothers and sisters, step back and take a look at this passage. What an example for us. But even better than that, what a Savior for us. What a Savior. We know in another passage it talks about he was praying so fervently that he was sweating blood. We know in Luke's Gospel when it describes this account it talks about angels coming to minister to him because he was so distraught. You and I will never know this grief. Some of us know great grief, intense suffering and you bear it and you carry it even now we'll never know the grief that Jesus bore. What He went through for us. Remember, this begins and leads up to the cross. This whole thing. Not just the nails in His hands, but this whole thing is that journey forward to the cross where He will bear the wrath. Where He will become the curse for us. Bearing our sins. Sins. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became sin. Why? So that sin could be destroyed. Power of sin rendered powerless. But let's close with this. I think it's also important for us to grapple with the stark contrast that we have presented in this passage. What did Jesus ask of His companions here? 
Yeah, verse 38. Remain here and watch with me. That is, stay spiritually vigilant. Is that a lot to ask? Wasn't a lot to ask, right? Just remain here. All you guys need to do is just sit here, right? Stay right here. I'm going to go over here. Hold on. Let's go to that first part again. You stay right here, right? And watch. Stay spiritually vigilant. He had taught them about watching before, right? Be ready. Son of man is coming at an hour. You do not expect him. Be ready. Stay awake. Spiritually stay awake. Be vigilant. Not a lot to ask, but as we see here, they failed repeatedly over and over again. I don't know about you, but that sounds really familiar to me. Not something I care to admit, but that sounds really familiar to me, what I see with these disciples. Sadly, it looks like my struggle with watching and praying. I see myself here. I am more like these disciples than their teacher when it comes to prayer. Sadly. Can you relate to that? Do you see yourself in these men as they struggle to stay vigilant? They didn't perceive the place where they were, did they? How many years later would they look back and they said, that very night, what were we doing? We were sleeping. We were sleeping? We were sleeping. Oh. Can you imagine thinking about that? Looking back and knowing everything that took place after that. And they were there when Jesus wanted them to be close to Him. Come with me. I want my friends with me. I, want you, I need your presence with me. And he comes back and they're just... <sighs> right? They're just totally out of it. God calls us to watch. To pray. To remain. Not for His sake, but for our sake. That we would do this. But we struggle. We see ourselves here. But as we read in verse 41... Jesus understands, doesn't He? Does He come back and rebuke them and say, you are the most fair-weather friends I could ever imagine. Get out of here. Like, kick them. Like, get back into the city. Go up to Bethany. Get, get out of here. Just go somewhere other than where I'm at. He doesn't say that, does He? They let Him down, but He comes over and He says, you couldn't even stay awake for one hour. <laughs> what does He tell them, though? He understands their struggle and He wants to encourage them. He wants to equip them for this struggle. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing. I know that you want to, but the flesh is weak. But you find a principle at work in yourself. Right? Battling. Sometimes that's related to the body. Sleep, hunger, sex. All of these appetites, the things that were kind of built and made up of, that get distorted inside of us and want to take us off the path. He says, flesh is weak. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
So we are thankful to God, brothers and sisters, as we step back and we take this entire picture in of Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, and we see our Lord Jesus, and we see His disciples, and we see ourselves in those disciples, and we see the Savior who was praying and preparing Himself to go to the cross for us. What He suffered, He suffered for us. And He did this So that we can look to Him now. And so we thank God this morning for the suffering of Jesus that began in the garden and culminated on the cross. We thank God for Jesus the wrath bearer. And we thank God for Christ's resurrection that now empowers us with hearts that long for God and His will to be done. And now we pray and we want to pray that we would really live from that new heart, right? We have that heart, but we don't always live from that heart, do we? We don't always experience that heart. That's why Paul would tell his readers, take off the old self and put on the new self, right? You have this, do- you have this garment. Why are you putting on this old garment? <laughs> put the new garment on. Clothe yourselves in Christ. Put on the full armor of God. He could say it many different ways, but he's saying the same thing that I'm saying to you right here. You have a new heart from God. It's His gift. Live from it. And, in light of the example of Christ here, pray from it. Pray from the new heart that Jesus' suffering purchased for you. Amen? Amen. Let's ask God even now in prayer. Let's pray in light of these things.